I just have that. What? Just like you. I one of the interviews I did and it takes a while here, was with Margaret Whiting, who grew up in this town, with her father, a great songwriter, and a lot of people used to come around that she met. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you, with, uh, with your family? With well, your some family? of the people that you just mentioned, I know well, like um, Harry Belafonte. He was one yeah. of the first celebs for me that I met, and I was about, I think I was about Robbie's age, about eight or nine, and uh, maybe a little younger. And he was swimming in our swimming pool. Right? But I, I, I grew up on, the kind of music I grew up on was people like Harry Belafonte and Count Basie. And um, then Pearl Bailey was very active and Ella Fitzgerald. Did you get to meet a lot of them? Oh, yeah. Was, they was... came over to the house for lunch, played golf with my dad. I went over to their house. Some of their kids I knew, Danny Thomas's kids I knew. So your folks were, were social in the, in the Somewhat, show yeah. too, uh-huh, there uh-huh, too. Uh-huh. I, I know your father traveled a lot. Oh, but, yeah. But at home, it was kind of a place where music people Yeah. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about it? Well, the people I met were so nice. You know, they were all uncles and aunts to me. You know, and they looked at me as like an adopted daughter or something because they really thought the world of our family... And um, I was very knowledgeable musically. You know, I just thought that that's what music was all about, which, has, which is why I didn't really get off into the contemporary music until I was much later. later how, did, how did that impact, uh, knowing all those people, impact your life with other kids? Well, <clears throat> I ended up going to school with, with quite a few people, whether they were in the music business or just in the business itself. I went to a private school and we had people like Bob Hope's niece, Phyllis Diller's son, Walt Disney's grandkids, people like that. And we all looked at each other as rather oddities, you know, because we all led very different lives, you know. Um, I seem to feel that my life was not as eccentric as some of those of my peers whose parents were in the business, because my mother particularly strived very hard to try to keep us you know, as normal, quote unquote, as possible. You had a, you have an older brother. Or I, I, I have an, I have. A, I was the first natural child. Yes. I have a sister that was adopted, who was original, who was really my cousin, because her mom and my mom were sisters, and then her mother passed, and my mom adopted her, and then my my dad wanted a boy, and they tried and tried, nothing happened, so they adopted a boy, and then my mother had twins. Oh, <laughs> twin so girls. Your, your brother is between you and the, and the twins, between uh-huh. Casey and uh, yeah. And what's your other Timberland. Oh, between Casey and the, um, between the twins yeah. and Cookie. Cookie. Cookie is the oldest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you you got on stage when you were eleven years old. Mm-hmm. Was there a was it predestined that uh, show business could have fooled me? Yeah. I, it was a kick to me. I never took it seriously. I, I remember being very nervous. And uh, and the way my dad found out that I could even sing, and I'll never forget this because it was really surprising to both of us. He was always bringing home jazz, you know. I mean, that's all I knew until I was like 15, and um, I knew every Ella Fitzgerald song. <clears throat> and I had made him sit down one day in the living room, and I sang him an Ella Fitzgerald tune, and it was that song, Unsighted. And he was so shocked to hear me sing that he found a part for me in this show that he was doing, and that's how I got on the show. And was this a, a, a show that played for weeks and weeks? It and was originally a show that ran for weeks. It was coming, I think, to the end, and they had probably someone to play the part that I played until he found out 
this new discovery. So um, uh, it was called, I think it was called The Merry Young World of Nat King Cole, and he was taking it to different cities, and it ended up in Riverside and the Greek Theater, and those are the two places that I played with my father. And Barbara McNair was also in the show, and she played me as a grown-up. And we did uh, the song from Gigi, It's a Bore. That's the song we did. And Nelson Riddle. You know, I mean, it was just a big thrill for me to look down and see this. I mean, Nelson Riddle, all these people were, I knew that there was something very, very special about all these people that were around my dad. And Nelson Riddle was like an uncle to me also. And he was just this proud director of the orchestra sitting up there. Hi, Uncle Nelson. (laughs) It's funny. how about, uh, was it, uh, we being pushed into the entertainment business after that? Or what, Not at all. What was it going to be? For? It was like, forget it. That was just fun and back to serious stuff, which was school. Um, I ended up, let's see, I graduated, that must have been, well, that wasn't until 62. So after that, I really don't remember any particular emphasis on music after that. You know, I went and finished school, went off, ended up going off to um, a private school when I turned uh, 14. And um, my goal was to be a doctor. I'd always wanted to be a doctor from the time I was about 10. Uh, That's what I wanted to do. And my mother was real, you know, she was elated about that. And um, so that's what I went to school to be. there was no stage door mother uh, pulling you? No, not at all. Uh And on the other hand, was the... Anybody discouraging you from saying, stay out well, of Well, I didn't get the discouragement, but neither did I get the encouragement. It was kind of like, let's feel this out, you know, see what's happening. And by the time when my father died, that just kind of threw everything off kilt, you know. I mean, no one really knew what they wanted to do after that. You were just about 15. Yeah. Uh, when you were 14 and 15, now you had to be listening to some other stuff, those guys in Detroit at the... Started that record company. Yep, and I heard my first influence was Marvin Gaye. Uh, let's see, I think The Supremes, yeah, Marvin Gaye, The Supremes, I guess in Stevie Wonder. Those were my first three big influences. They never got to the house, did they? No, no, I never, I never met them. I didn't meet Stevie. Stevie was the first one I met, and Stevie and I met in Hollywood at a place called The Haunted House, which was a, a hot club at the time, and it was after hours, and he was just really beginning to get started, because we're about the same age, you know, and he was just kind of coming into his own, even though he was little Stevie Wonder, you know, he was really not that big, and I remember he got up on stage and played drums and piano, and no one was in the club, and he went from one instrument to the other, and I was with a girlfriend, and we were looking at him like he was crazy. I mean, this guy is wild. Yeah. It was about 16, 17 then? I guess yeah. about uh, 17, 18. Yeah. <laughs> well, what did, uh, what did the Cole seniors think of all that kind of music? They didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> In a nutshell, they did not like it. My dad, um, oh, and I was into the Beatles, too. Heavy into the Beatles. I mean, I had everything that they ever did because they were at Capitol Records, which is, you know, the same label. So, you know, my dad was bringing home jazz, and one day I just said, Dad, I said, please bring home some Beatles albums. He was very upset, but he did. He did bring me some, and that's when I started collecting the albums. But his whole thing was, 
you know, Mr. Cole will not rock and roll. And uh, whenever he did try, it was funny. Yeah. Because it just, you know, it was so funny. I remember just him watching him dance, and I would just laugh, you know, because he just was not that type of person. He later did some records that, you know, I guess you they were the triplets. They certainly weren't rock and roll. But yeah, uh, but like Sin for Me or yeah, something like that. Yeah, like that. there were a few of those. But kind of, uh, it was a halfway. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I think it was like, well, let me do this, okay, yeah. for to appease a few people that want me to do it. But that's not really where his heart was at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I didn't want to spend you know a lot of time talking about your dad, though. You are the only source that I'm going to be talking to do relive that. Uh, what did you think of him and his music? I, I don't mean of him as a dad. I just I thought he was great. Yeah. I was one of the ones that would sit out in the audience when he was performing. If I got, if we were on the road or we got a chance to see him, I would sit out in the audience because I loved to watch my my father perform. He was great. I mean, you know, he had fun and he was the same person on stage that he was at home, which was nice. He wasn't like a totally different person, you know. Um, he was the same easygoing guy, um, but he really did have such an effect on the audience, and I got just a great thrill watching him do what he did with the audience and how they would be so mesmerized by him. Well, did it bother you at all that your friends and the other kids that you hung out with in the 60s there were not into him at all? I mean, but <laughs> no, I don't, I don't remember it bothering me. Yeah. Not, not really, you know. As a matter of fact, they were very influenced. If anything, that was one person that everybody seemed to know, okay, even my friends. And I remember my mom taking them with me, too, my friends. I would take them, too, to some of his shows. And and they, I was the oddity, even though I was in a group of, of, I I was in a club of, of young ladies, all black, girls about 11 between the ages of 11 and 13 whose parents were upper class or whatever upper middle class whatever you want to call it so we knew the life of you know we were used to things we we knew what that kind of life was but I was still the curiosity piece because I had a father who made his living as a singer and that was a very odd thing as much money as he was making you know so my, I think my friends still look at me as being someone just a little bit apart. And uh, there was a flurry and a flap about uh, not being able to buy a house someplace. Mm-hmm. In so how old were you during that time? Do you remember anything? About I that? think that I wasn't even born because right. the story that I hear yeah. is that they had my mom and dad had just gotten married, yeah. and um, this was around forty nine, forty eight, forty nine. I was so I wasn't born until nineteen fifty. It's a, it's a great story. In talking to uh, a number of entertainers who were black and the problems they faced, one of the, the platters who were going to open at the, at the Flamingo in Vegas after great success around the world, couldn't even go in the front door of the mm-hmm. Flamingo. Mm-hmm. Uh, My father had did, that. How about you? I've you? never had that. Yeah. I, I must say one time um, I, I received uh, a threat from the Ku Klux Klan down in, um, it was either Little Rock or somewhere down south. And at that time, what they did was, because we were doing a concert there, and we weren't about to call off the concert, so we just had the CIA or whoever, the FBI or whoever, you know, federal agents come in, and they cleared out the airport 
it was a tiny little part about as big as this room. And uh, they had, you know, given me a threat, don't come down here and start any trouble like your father did. You know, that kind of thing. But... But stay with the cuckoos. I, the, the real problems when you're dealing with a club owner right. or, or a hotel owner in Las Vegas. Yeah. But you never ran into them. No, I, I don't think... But I'm sure that it was there, but it was all very subtle. You know, it was a lot more subtle than yeah. when I got started. And you probably got a little edge anyhow because of who you exactly. were. Exactly, absolutely. Um, I know that. I know for a fact that there were elbows that I, you know, um, were rubbing that I wouldn't have been able to rub had I just been a black girl that was a singer. Not in those days. Well, the career really started when you got off to college, didn't it? You started singing around Mm -hmm. there. Well, how did that all happen? Well, I went to um, about 1971. I had been attending um, the University of Southern California out here and was planning on getting my, my, um, uh, was planning on finishing at that school. And then, when you, at the time, if you graduated from a certain university but had a great grad school, the chances of you getting into it were real easy. So I wanted to stay there, but I was so bored. You know, I, all I did was study. So I went, went back to UMass, which is where I originally started in Amherst. And that's where I started singing. And, um... So by the time I got ready to graduate, I graduated from UMass and just, I had my application for grad school and it what, just got what lost. Kind of, what kind of singer were you? I was a rock singer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was wearing hot pants and high boots and I had afro out to here and I was singing uh, anything from Gracie Slick to uh, Janis Joplin to um, Crosby, Stills and Nash. Um, those were my idols, Gracie Slick and Janis Joplin. You know, once I say so once I got off, I mean, it was a whole musical world that I hadn't been introduced to up until I was fifteen or sixteen. So by the time I got into college, all this great music was coming out. This real heavy rock, you know, um, Steve Miller Blues Band. Uh, a lot of it was coming out of Capitol Records too. So I really got turned on by that, and, um, and that's what my gone. repertoire was. Your dad was gone by this time. Yeah, oh yeah. Course, yeah. Oh yeah. He had been gone. That uh, that whole period was. It was very hard, I guess, because he, he really lingered for a while, too. Was well, yeah, his, um, you know, it's, I'm glad that now I think of only the good memories, yeah. because during that time, it was such a, it was um, such a sad and, and grief-stricken time for all of us, you know, that really, you know, it was like our arm had been cut off, or our legs had been cut off, you know, and it took us all a while to really get back together again. And it's really only been in the past maybe five years that, maybe ten years, that we've really been able to reconnect as a family, even, as a unit, you know, because he just meant so much to each one of us, you know, in his individual way. And, of course, the twins never knew him. You know, my, my youngest sisters never really knew him. They were only three years old when he passed. My brother was about seven and then my sister and I are really the ones that have the, the memories. You know. He was only 45 years old? Yeah, 47. 47 years old? Yeah. Uh, after you were singing all this rock stuff, was, was it in your mind that now that's what you're going to do? And how did Mama feel about that? Well, <laughs> let's see. I think she wasn't too happy about it. I, I got hooked up with a singing group when I was about 18. And as a matter of fact, it's ironic how things come around again. 
But the, the, one of the people in that group I ran into just like four days ago while oh, yeah. I was in Las Vegas. And it was with her group that I wanted to go off to Hawaii or something. And I asked my mother, could I go? And she said, absolutely not, because I just started college. So that was the beginning and the end of my singing career at that point in my life. Since then, just today, I ran into another person who was working at K-Day. You know, she was the costume designer for our little group. You know, But anyway, um, so when I started doing that, I don't know, I never really, I still didn't take it seriously. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I really thought that I'll do this for the summer. This was like 72. I'll do this for the summer and I'll apply for grad school in the fall. You know, that kind of thing. I'll make some money, that kind of thing. And I really didn't ever take it seriously. And for several years, I, I just didn't foresee that I would make this a such a career that it turned out to be. But you did work. And you did I worked quite well. How did you manage to do that? I have no idea. I had, um, and, and I, was not with, I wasn't really with a great agency until almost a year later. But from the time in college, before I got to Buddy Howe, which was, who was then president of GAC, um, I was working all up and down Connecticut at all the holiday inns, you know, little lounges and things like that. But constantly, I was like working. By the time I got to Buddy Howe, I had already worked 11 months out of the year. And um, I was well, working in front of audiences. So. No problem. Just, it was just, I was always a ham. I was always a ham. Even when, when my dad would take me to places, I remember my mother telling me that I was always, you know, around people and, you know, doing my thing and just, you know, kind of like my son is very much, he reminds me of myself very much in that sense. Very musically inclined, always have been, you know. But no one ever necessarily took me, I, at least I didn't take myself seriously. Maybe other people did. They saw saw in me what I didn't see. So there had to be a period of what, what, about three years? It was three years, years three before years. I met my producers. It was three no, years. And no, I had worked steady. I had and no recording. moved several times. I had I was doing okay. Anybody going to make a record with you? No. Nope. Just you're going to be... I was approached, I think, the year before uh, I ended up signing with Capitol Records. I was approached by Epic. Uh -huh. And uh, no, it was Epic and Atlantic. And Atlantic, they were all excited and they really wanted to sign me. And I had done a demo for them. And that was, I had a manager by then and everything. And they came back and they really liked the demo, but they had a problem. And that was that Aretha was on that label and she threatened to leave them okay. if they signed me. This is what they told yes. us. <laughs> you know, who knows? But as a result, that, you know, that didn't happen. The, um, Signing with Atlantic or Epic, and one of the other, some other uh, record companies approached me because my manager felt it was time for a recording deal. But they all had that same; they wanted to tie me in with my dad, and that was not what we wanted to do at all. Um, so, uh, let's see. Then my manager introduced me to Chuck Milton Jackson Chuck. and Marvin Yancey. Yeah, yeah, and uh, they were friends of Larkin Arnold. Larkin had known them from some time before. And I met them in New York in, I guess, 73, the end of, towards the end of 73, like around October. We went into the studio. Um, in, uh, let's see, was it 74? 
No, we met in seventy four, I guess. Yeah. 75, you first yeah. July seventy five. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I was. We were through with the record by. Well, we were through with the first several um, songs by December of uh, seventy four, and I had signed with Capitol in, in April of seventy four. Oh, so Cap. Now, how, how did that Cap- come about? Though? Well, when I met Chuck and Marvin. Yeah. Um, Somehow or other, they're hooked up with Larkin. They're oh, the Larkin ones. They said, "Listen, we found the girl we want to re- we want to record. You know, would you t- give a, give a listen?" And at the time, my manager and their manager put up the money to take us into the studio, and it cost about ten grand. We did four tunes, um, three of which ended up going on the first and separate album. <laughs> and. Uh, so, but Larkin, you know, that was the last record company we went to. I mean, we had gone to everybody, and they kept the tape on the desk, and we were you know, fine. But what about your father? You know, that kind of thing. And I said, oh. So it was ironic that it ended up, ended up being Capitol Records. Now, it was, uh, when you got on record, was did you feel some kind of pressure to deliver, or was there... Have you ever felt I that had, at all? Ever felt that... Only... Only when when my career started going like this yeah. did I feel the pressure. But not for those first three or four albums, I had fun. I wasn't even thinking about, you know, trying to meet up to so and so's expectations or doing something that, you know. Although I felt that everything I did would have made my father proud because I really feel that in the short time we had together, by the time he realized I was even interested musically, that he would have wanted me to do my own thing. Even though he tried to influence me, I think when I think about it now, I really feel like he was just trying to give me a lot of options to choose from, and I think he would have wanted me to do what I'm doing, and at the same time, on every album that, especially the albums that were successful, I was always doing a jazz tune, except for the first one. On every album, there was a song where I was either scatting or doing something jazz oriented, and those were my better albums. Now, Marvin and Chuck had a vision for you. There was, uh, did that jive with where you wanted to be, too? I had no idea where I wanted yeah. to be. Yeah. You know, they really took me and molded me. Because what they did was, first of all, they had, they were Aretha Franklin idols. And they had wanted to work with her. They were great songwriters. They had wanted to work with her and could never get to her. And when they met me and they heard my voice, they decided, we're going to make her the next Aretha. Me not knowing this, of course. So when This Will Be came out, and the way I was singing it, somehow or other, not to say, of course, I was a big Aretha fan myself. And as a matter of fact, when my manager met me, you know, he told me I was doing a lot of her tunes in my show. And he said, you got to stop doing these Aretha Franklin tunes. He said, you sound a lot like her. And I said, really? You know? So when Chuck and Marvin wrote the stuff like This Will Be and Inseparable and things like that, there was a flair of Aretha in, some, in those songs, and people started comparing me to her. And, but mostly what they did for me was they opened up the whole R&B thing for me. I mean, I didn't really know what R&B was until I started singing it myself. You know how honest and unusual that answer is about giving credit to the producers? Uh, uh, you don't hear an artist ever say that. that. They never, really? ever say that. <laughs> because it, it, we all know it's true. Uh-huh. Uh, we who deal oh, in signing talent and getting, it's like a motion picture director can uh-huh. get a performance oh, and edit a film to That's make it. someone get up there. I tell you. Uh, and Marvin and Chuck 
in the business, we knew that the combination was what worked. Absolutely. Uh, but Absolutely. It's, it's very rare that anybody <laughs> says, well, yeah, they did something too. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, they were right. I mean, we, we were the greatest team at that time that could have ever happened. I mean, even now, there are no teams quite like the team that I had. You know, other than, I mean, someone like Dion and Bert. Yeah. You know, but I mean, I had that same magic with Chuck and Marvin that Dion had with Bert. Um, that um, who else had that? Well, I can't really there think. There have been uh, was Peter Asher with Linda Ronstadt over a long right. period of time. Ashford with uh, yeah, a Linda Creed sure. with yeah. Holland know, Dozier Holland exactly. making records. Those kind of things. That's things. the kind of combination yeah. that we had, you know. Writing so. for and arranging for. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that you remember that first year when that record came out and all those incredible things happened, what, what do you recall about it? I remember some of it. It was <laughs> it was kind of hazy. It happened right. My life didn't change right away. It really didn't. No, it did not change overnight like that. See, it was, I have to say that it was not all that new to me. Uh, what surprised me most was that I was listening to my voice on radio. That was new to me. That I'd never had. Yeah. But the response or the fact that, I mean, I, I was surprised to find out that I was singing as well as I was. You know, I really never thought that my voice sounded as good as it started sounding on these records. I said, boy, these, you know, I really like these songs. You know, I mean, I became to know, I came to know who I was, you know, by listening to this music. So I was excited along with everybody else, you know. But my life didn't really change right away until Marvin and I got married. And then things changed very fast. We were into our second album. We could do no wrong. You know, Capitol Records just gave us the go-ahead sign every time we went to the... And we were just coming out hit after hit after hit, and it wasn't even something we were working on. I mean, it was just... It was, it was within Chuck and Marvin. They were like kids. You know, I mean, they had wanted... They had tasted this for so long, and they had found the vehicle through which they could express themselves. And that was me. You know, and so... We didn't even think about it. They said, this is what we want you to do. And I said, oh, I don't think I can do it. They said, we know you can. And they just inspired me to be something that, you know, I just never knew I could be. And it's, it was a great, great time for all of us. Really there was. is that moment, uh, whether it's a year or five years or seven years or six months in mm-hmm. careers, that, uh, you know, in talking to this broad range of people who've mm-hmm. been there, not there anymore, still there, there is that time where you're the moment, and you oh, were the moment uh, for that yeah. period in there. You know, yeah. that, then you go on and have careers, mm-hmm. but when you're the moment, yeah. And people remember, yeah. people remember, and and it's it's very, it's surprising at the same time. It's very nice, you know, that people remember all of that, and that I caused quite a flurry, and that I didn't even, you know, I carried it, you know, rather tongue-in-cheek because I really didn't realize what was happening. Remember the Grammys? I do remember the Grammys. I remember when I won the first one and I wasn't, it hadn't even been televised. Uh, it was for R&B female artists and they told me about it while I was still in the trailer. You know, and I wore my little multicolored dress and I was sitting there in the front row and my uh, Janice was sitting next to me, my cousin, my traveling companion and Helen Reddy Helen Reddy and either John Denver or someone presented that the best 
best new artists of the year to me. And I was just, I mean, I, I said they sat me here on purpose, you know, because I was right there at the stairs, you know. And it was, so that was, that was a really special time. And then the following year when I won it again, was in, you know, it was great. It was just terrific. Why do you think uh, eventually uh, hits didn't come as frequently? Had they run out? Uh, I think that for me, my personal life has a lot to do with the kind of work I put out. And I hate to say that, but for at, at least at that time, um, for some people, when they're, they're, they're best when they're depressed. Okay? For others, when they're happy, their work isn't as good because they're too busy being happy. Um, I was happy, and I was at my best when I was happy. Um, my marriage started to fail. And Capitol Records, for some reason, thought it was a good idea that Marvin no longer produced me. And then he and Chuck had a falling out as well. So it was like our whole circle started to just disintegrate. And he and Chuck, actually he and Chuck first, about several months before our marriage was in trouble, his relationship with his partner was in trouble. Then our relationship was in trouble. And then the relationship with Capital started being in trouble because they, you know, they didn't want to lose their artists. And you know, if it was a choice between the producers and the artists, well, hey, the producers got to go. And they um, su suggested that I work with some other people, but I said, no, no, I still want to work with with Marvin. So Marvin then hooked up with someone else. That album was, I think, the "I Love You So" album. And that was during the time that our marriage was pretty much on the rocks. 79. Yeah. And um, yeah, then so there was the Peebo album. There was a whole album with Peebo, yeah. The whole album with Peebo, where, where, and Marvin and I were kind of trying to get that together. Who, uh, who produced that album? That was produced by uh, Marvin Yancey and Mark Davis. Four Sides were produced by Mark and Marvin, and yeah. then Four Sides were produced by Peebo. Yeah. So... Um, and you had to give me some time. Yeah, give me some time. And that was a fun project. I enjoyed doing that with people. That so was you were still like, hot, you were still yeah. singing well. It yeah. was the whole organization was right. starting to tremble. Right, yeah, even um, though it was a little shaky, you know. Um, the I Love You So album didn't do great because I didn't particularly care for most of the stuff that was on there. Um, and then the last album really of my... Um, time with Capitol was the album called Don't Look Back. Don't Look Back and then it was a happy love. Okay. Yeah. Don't Look Back was the last album that Marvin was involved with. Okay. Until um, I went with another record company. Okay. But it, then it was Marvin and a guy named Gene Barge. They produced the Don't Look Back album. And out of that album came someone I used to love with Michael Masser. Then we changed totally, went to George Tobin and did the Happy Love album, which was I didn't care for it. Um, he was very self-indulgent, I felt, and that he wouldn't allow any outside musicians to come in and work some of these tunes. So that we had the same musicians doing all the tunes, and it just didn't. Did you have a feeling that this might be the end of it for you? Or, uh, no. You never feel that. No. <laughs> no, that's the amazing option. No, I mean, you yeah, you, you do have to feel, uh, you know. The next one will be better. Yeah, but I must say that Happy Love was 
not necessarily a great time for me. It was starting to be the beginning of the end for me personally. Um, by then, Marvin and I had split up, and um, uh, I was having, you know, starting to experience some drug problems. But it wasn't, you know, like real, real known. It was just erratic, you and know, gradual, too. very gradual. And then after that, I left Capitol. Um, I went to CVS. It was very abrupt. It was very abrupt. Um, there were a lot of feelings that were hurt because I really didn't say any proper goodbyes. It was my manager. I would say Kevin was basically responsible for that whole interruption. Kevin Hunter was my first manager. He was my manager for years and years and years and years. Um, and along with with when I left Capitol and went to CBS, uh, that was where Larkin Arnold was. Uh, because he had left Capitol a year or two before, and I didn't feel real happy about him li having left. So I wanted to get away from there as soon as possible. Um, their support seemed to be a little not as strong as it had been, and, you know, things just started exactly. happening. So uh, I went over to CBS, and we did the album I'm Ready, and Marvin and Chuck teamed back together again. But it was very last minute. It was really a very unwise move on everyone's part, um, particularly the record companies, because I was originally working with Stanley Clark, and we were doing some great stuff. That stuff is still on the shelf today at CBS. There's some great tracks on, on there that they have. Um, and for some reason, they felt that the stuff was too ahead of itself. And so they scratched it. And... Um, that was about 81, 82, because I was yeah, trying to that get was Stanley to work with Patrice Russian on an album for me at Electra, mm -hmm. and he was working with you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I was really, by then, I was going through some very bad drug drug stuff. I mean, my stu my, my voice was was being affected by it. My whole physical sense was being affected. I had developed polyps on my throat and all this. Stanley was very concerned. You know, he was, poor thing, he was trying to work with me. He had to just about hold me up in front of the microphone sometimes. And it was just, you know, it was just a real crappy time, you know. Well, so the whole series, this whole series of things. So that whole album, yeah. Well, that, that was, you know, all had a lot to do with it. I was in another relationship, which was also pretty yeah. crazy and not very, you know, not very healthy. And I was very active in, in my drug use and my drug abuse. So um, they called this album, which was so ironic, and I remember begging Larkin Arnold not to call it this. This called it I'm ready. And, um, but I choose now to see it as almost a cry for help. I'm ready to get myself together because that's in fact what I did after the album came out. It did not do well. And I went into my first rehab treatment center, which was not very effective. One of the reasons that it wasn't effective was because I wasn't ready for it to be effective. The other reason that it wasn't effective is because the approach of the treatment center at that time, we still didn't really know a lot about drug addiction and alcohol abuse and things like that. So we were still treating it like a sickness, mental sickness, yeah. rather than a disease that can be controlled. Um, so I didn't get much out of that treatment. I was only there for 30 days, and I went right back into my same old thing. And from that point, I had switched managers. While I was, before I went there, I switched managers came, met Dan. Dan actually approached me. Um, and uh, I couldn't imagine him wanting to come. I was at my lowest, lowest, lowest point. And I just couldn't imagine him wanting to 
Did you have deal with me to, yeah. to talk with them? Uh, oh, I had isolated everybody from yeah. me. I had basically kept family people. and yeah. friends and everything else. Yeah. So yeah. even if I did, it just wasn't anything I Ooh, wanted to talk boy, about. Boy, what a nightmare! Yeah. But you don't know it when you're. Uh uh-uh. uh You really don't. All you know is that you're angry, you're frustrated, yeah. Yeah. and everybody's and, doing it to you. Yeah, that's right. So Dan came to me and he said, you know, hey, I believe in you and I just want you to get yourself together and I'd like to, you know, be there. Da, da, da. So I said, okay. I mean, what, you know, what the hell? And um, uh, for the year after that, it was a struggle for him, at, you know, at definitely. I don't think Dan made any money that year because Were you working? Were you trying I was to work? working, but, you know, he was waiving his commissions. You know, because I needed the money. Because, you know, financially I was in trouble here, in trouble there. So I had to literally work to live at that point. You know, the last, probably the past two years. Um, before I finally, in 80, the end of 83, um, my manager, my mother, um, my accountant, and my attorney, these people approached me and said, hey, this is, you know, it's just getting out of hand. You've got to do something. And it was, um, what is her name? Dukakis, Governor Dukakis' oh, yeah. wife that recommended Hazelden to my mother. No kidding. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my mom called Dan. She didn't want me to know that she had, had anything to do with it because she figured I'd probably, be, oh, if my mother had anything to do with it, I don't want it, you know. So Dan said, well, there's this place go to and you know through my haze and through the blur I felt that these people were trying to tell me something you know through the fogginess of my own mind I knew that something was happening and that I really couldn't go on like this much longer so Dan literally flew with me to Minnesota I remember it was November 29th 1983 and he flew with me it was freezing cold there was a snowstorm I don't remember anything I was totally out of it. Got there, checked in, stayed in the infirmary for two days, and after that, I was ready for to start my treatment. And boy, I'll tell you, those first, that first probably month and a half was the most horrid time of my life. I didn't know anybody, and I'm sure they couldn't even believe I was I was who I said I was because I had changed so much physically. I had gotten very, very thin. My skin had turned a funny color. You know, I just looked like a very sick little girl. Yeah. So, um, about the first month and a half, I had to do some real soul searching, and the counselors were were very tough but tender with me, and they treated me like they treated everybody else. But they also recommended that I get further treatment, and I knew that things were starting to change for me when I went from not not wanting to be there to not knowing when I wanted to go home. And at that point, my recovery started to happen, and I was there for six months. Did you think about your career at all during that time? I stopped thinking about it after a while. I really did. You just wanted to be alive. It wasn't until about six weeks, maybe, um, yeah, about six, two months maybe, before I left there that I even sat down at the piano. You know, I just didn't touch a piano. It took a long time to touch it again, even after I came out. Um, Did it affect you as, as a singer at all, uh, all during that period? Did anything Vocally, happen? you mean? Yeah, vocally. Uh, no. Um, just that I hadn't, you know, my voice yeah. wasn't in practice, but my voice God was still there. God knows what all that does to you, <laughs> your voice. Exactly. But it was still there, you know. 
Um, <clears throat> and the first thing that happened was I went to, uh, when I got out, um, I did, it was a blessing that I went to work right away. And uh, that was about eight weeks. No, that was about six weeks after I came home. You went out and worked. I went back to work down at the Golden Nugget in Las God, Vegas. how was that? It was terrible. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was terrible. For everyone, they said, hey, you know, I put on a whole bunch of weight. And, uh, but I was sounding okay. I was sounding okay. And of course, I wanted to do my best, but it was still a very, you know, pretty ter- terrifying moment for me. And it continued to be like that for a while until the dangerous album. Mm-hmm. And um, even though it wasn't the right venue, the album wasn't, at least I was in good voice, I was healthy, and I was better than I'd been three years ago. So I, I took you know a lot of compensation in that, and the fact that the album sold 150,000 copies, whereas the previous album had only sold 30 or 40. So that was encouraging too, you know, and I just, you know, made up my mind and Dan was, you know, Dan and my family during the course of my recovery, all that time, my family, people that I hadn't heard from in years, people who I had basically distanced from me were sending notes of support, you know, whether it was through Dan or through my mother to let them know, to tell me, you know, they're behind me, that they believe in me, they love me, that no matter what happens, that they just want me to get better, you know. What kind of perspective does that put your career in, uh, in terms of what you think? Uh, well, <laughs> How important is it? I guess it's still important, but it's not quite as important. You know, I, I would like to have all of that back again that I had those first couple of years, but I'm not, I'm not anticipating that now. To me, it's just that I do my best and that I'm probably the best I could ever have been right now. You know, I'm, I am probably my best ever because there were albums that I did, even that were successful, that I did under the influence of drugs. You know, on this album, I did straight, sober. The last album, too... But this album has confidence that the last album didn't quite have because I was nervous. But what you, what you have to keep in mind is that even though you may do your best work, mm. uh, the public doesn't give you the same position. Aretha's had some hits, but it's not like it was. Right. I mean, she could, you could exactly. even, even sold because the numbers of records get sold now are maybe like, but it's you're not the you're the moment one time yeah. in your life. It's very rare anybody yeah. can yeah. circle Stay back and be the, the moment, moment again. Right. You right. can have your hits, you can have your success, and you just look at it right down the line, and you, and you absolutely That's know that it uh, it's it's Whitney Houston now. But yeah. you just know that the next album will not have the same hysteria yeah. as these last two. Yeah. It can be a wonderful album. So yeah. what? It seems to me what you have to keep in mind is that you just you just go out and knock yourself out of the best yeah. and don't be concerned right. if they're not It's not the numbers anymore, it's the quality. It's the quality of work because, and, and people you know, will buy And you. people yeah. will buy quality. Yeah. yeah. They'll yeah. buy the record because yeah. they want the record. Yeah. It's not any hysterical right. dedication to right. uh, an artist that everybody has that moment that engines up mm-hmm. and it's it's hard to understand it when you're yeah. not it anymore. But I think that that's good, and I think that that keeps you grounded and certainly keeps you humble. And, um, you know. Nobody else in the family ever got into the singing, did they? 
Nobody really wanted to. I guess they saw what I went through and probably scared them to death. But no one really had that desire like, like that. And I didn't really have the desire until I thought that I might not be able to do it again. Then I got a very strong desire to prove, you know, to myself and everybody else that I could. So, you know, I'm happy. I'm content. I'm, I'm happy with, with where I've come and, and how far I've come. And I think that it's a greater accomplishment now for me than even before, in a different kind of way. You also have to feel uh, with this record, this record especially, a great deal of affection coming back from the radio and yeah. music community altogether. Yes, very much so. They have been very supportive, enthusiastic. I mean, just plain nice, you know, and so happy. And they all say that. We're just so happy to have you back. Welcome back. You know, it's so nice to have you back. Please don't stay away so long. It's good. I mean, I get calls like this when I'm doing radio spots and interviews, and people call in, and they all say such nice things. It's like almost scary, you know, because you're waiting for someone to call up and say, you're an ass. (laughs) Well, you know, nobody ever, get the worst of it for you, ever talked about you, that you screwed people over or anything like that. Nobody... No matter how bad you were, that seemed to be your no, problem. No, I screwed myself over. You screwed yourself over. I screwed you know, myself. there are a lot of people who've had that problem who just have lashed out at everybody around yeah. them yeah. and left a lot of blood around. Yeah. But uh, that was it. Was you that uh, you got murdered? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So you know, I. So there was this reservoir of terrific goodwill play. Yeah. It is, and and that means a lot to me. You know, because one of the things that. Um, that uh, you know, people felt for my father it was not just because he was a great singer, but people that never even met him just got the feeling from him watching him on television that he was a nice person. You know, and they loved and respected him for that. And that's, you know, a lot of that has been transferred to me. And I think initially I felt unworthy of it because it just came and I hadn't really worked for it. You know. But now that it's coming, I feel very good about it, and I feel that I can carry that a lot more grace, gracefully and graciously than I have. Yeah.